Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. The problem of evil is the most used and biggest objection to the existence of God. There is not a skeptic out there who doesn't cite the existence of evil as a reason God probably does not exist. And so we need to be frank. This is a serious objection that Christians cannot simply overlook. And there are no answers to the problem of evil that can explain every horrible event. The reason why this is a persistent objection is because of the emotional sting that evil causes runs deep for mankind. Why does God allow so much pain and misery? Does God really love us if he can look down and see a child being tortured and not stop it? Any one of us would if we came across such a horrible act. Yet the omniscient God does nothing and simply lets evil continue unchecked. Why? I've spent years researching this and have delayed a formal video on it because I wanted to take my time and give it a fair treatment. Again, this is a serious issue that needs to be addressed. But over the years in my research, I have come to the conclusion the only way to address the problem of evil is not just through philosophy, although that is part of it. Because the problem of evil stings emotionally more than anything else. I'm indebted to Clay Jones for this. But one cannot truly address the problem of evil without the message of the gospel. I don't think the problem of evil can be answered without Christianity, and I'll explain why later on. But first, we need to begin by going over what the problem of evil is and the different types of arguments. I would suspect the problem of evil has been used for millennia, but the logical problem of evil was famously given by the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus, and is what most people think of when they think of the problem of evil. Premise 1. If God is all good, then he wants to stop evil. Premise 2. If God is all powerful, then he can stop evil. Premise 3. There is evil. Conclusion. Therefore, there is not an all-powerful and all-good God. However, this argument is not used by most modern atheistic philosophers, because it ignored another important attribute of God, his omniscience. Being that God is all-knowing, he might in his perfect knowledge have very good reasons for allowing evil that we cannot see. Agnostic Paul Draper notes that some serious attempts have been given that show evil is logically compatible with God's existence. Specifically, he says Alvin Plantinga's free will defense has persuaded many. Plantinga says of his free will defense, A world containing creatures who are significantly free and freely perform more good than evil actions, is more valuable, all else being equal, than a world containing no free creatures at all. Now God can create free creatures, but he can't cause or determine them to do only what is right. For if he does so, then they aren't significantly free after all. They do not do what is right freely. To create creatures capable of moral good, therefore, he must create creatures capable of moral evil and he can't give these creatures the freedom to perform evil and at the same time prevent them from doing so. 
As it turned out, sadly enough, some of the free creatures God created went wrong in the exercise of their freedom. And this is the source of moral evil. The fact that free creatures sometimes go wrong, however, counts neither against God's omnipotence nor against his goodness. For he could have forestalled the occurrence of moral evil only by removing the possibility of moral good. Paul Draper notes, In order for a logical argument from evil to succeed, it is necessary to show that, for some known fact about evil, it is logically impossible for God to have a good moral reason to permit that fact to obtain. This, however, is precisely what most philosophers nowadays believe cannot be shown. And so the free will defense succeeds in showing it is at least logically possible for God to exist alongside evil. Because it might be the case a world with free will and evil is more valuable than a world with no free will and no evil. And thus William Rowe has to admit, there is a fairly compelling argument for the view that the existence of evil is logically consistent with the existence of a theistic God. What most atheists argue today is the evidential problem of evil, which today is where the real debate is because it is a probabilistic argument. It argues that given the amount of evil in the world, it is unlikely an all-loving, all-powerful God exists. As Paul Draper says, Premise 1. Gratuitous evil exists. Premise 2. The hypothesis of indifference, i.e., that if there are supernatural beings, they are indifferent to gratuitous evils, is a better explanation for one than theism. Conclusion, therefore, evidence prefers that no god, as commonly understood by theists, exists. Perhaps Sam Harris explains the issue of evil in a far more relatable way. Somewhere in the world a man has abducted a little girl. Soon he will rape, torture, and kill her. If an atrocity of this kind is not occurring at precisely this moment, it will happen in a few hours or days at most. The girl's parents believe, at this very moment, that an all-powerful and all-loving God is watching over them and their family. Are they right to believe this? Is it good that they believe this? No. The entirety of atheism is contained in this response. As you can see, the issue many skeptics have is given the amount of horrendous evil in the world, how can an all-loving God allow this to happen, especially if he has the power to stop it? Surely it is far more likely there is no such God. The issue itself has to be addressed by looking at what moral evil is. It cannot be brushed over as mere hardship. To put it bluntly, as C.S. Lewis said, the Christian answer that we have used our free will to become very bad is so well known that it hardly needs to be stated. But to bring this doctrine into real life, in the minds of modern men, and even modern Christians, is very hard. We need to really look at what evil is, and I'm not going to hold any punches back or give a cheap account, so viewer discretion is advised. The reality is, the atheists are right that our history is filled with insurmountable, horrendous evil. The reality we all have to face is genocide is not inhumane, despite that little lie we like to tell ourselves. Genocide is very much human. When the Bible says humans are totally depraved, it is meant to be a very serious claim. 
Matt Dillhunty and many others have argued the Bible is an evil book that poisons our minds. Telling us we are totally depraved is a horrible thing to say and degrades us as humans. Well, that would only be true if the Bible was lying and we are not actually depraved. If I was suffering from narcissism and you told me I was a narcissist and needed to get psychiatric help, that would only be a horrible thing to say if it was false. If it was true, then it might have been the best thing you could have told me, because you would want to see me get help and overcome my mental disorder. So if the Bible claims that we are totally depraved, we ought to test that against reality, and it will help us better understand what moral evil is. What I'm about to go over will be a hard pill to swallow, and it will take some time to unpack. Because once we understand human nature, I suggest the problem of evil falls in the context. See, we like to think of ourselves as further along than our primitive ancestors, who engaged in genocide, rape, and torture. But there have been more people murdered in the past 120 years than any other time in our history. The two world wars gave humanity an up-close look at some of the most brutal acts humans have ever committed against their fellow humans. The Nazis rounded up Jews, homosexuals, gypsies, the handicapped, Polish, Ukrainians, and many other groups they deemed unworthy. They ripped children from their mothers, and they murdered children in front of their parents. They made their victims walk in horrible death marches, forced them into sweltering rail cars, and then made them travel for days without food or water. People would defecate, urinate, and puke all over each other in these rail cars, all to be taken to death camps where they were painfully exterminated with poisonous gas. Reports from guards talk of people in the chambers climbing over each other to try to claw their way out. They knew everyone was dead when the screaming stopped. The Nazis also performed gruesome experiments on young children, where victims were put into decompression chambers, drained of blood, or sewn together. The worst part was, most of the young men who carried out these killings and tortures were average people from Germany drafted into the military. We have identified over 10,000 camps, ghettos, and brothels the Nazis set up. Many of the so-called unfit were forced into slave labor for Volkswagen, BMW, Bayer, and many other companies. So it is not like the Germans did not know what was going on. The German population knew early on Hitler wanted to exterminate those he saw as unfit. And most did nothing when he started rounding people up. And worst of all, many joined in and helped him. Was this inhumane? This was completely human. Of course, it is sadly obvious to any student of history, Japan was probably far worse than Germany. The horrors they brought upon the Chinese people were thought to be unfathomable in a post-Enlightenment era. The Japanese army raped, tortured, and murdered more than 300,000 Chinese and committed some of the most gruesome acts known to man. People were lined up in decapitation contests. Civilians were tied down and used for bayonet practice. Soldiers routinely would target women for gang rapes and torture, and more often than not, they targeted children. Many went beyond rape and disemboweled women, sliced off their breasts. They would hang men and women on hooks up by their tongues. Fathers were forced to rape their own daughters at gunpoint. People were buried alive, castrated, and roasted alive over fires. It was so bad that Nazi leaders, present in Nanking, 
intervened to put a stop to it. The Japanese army was so bad, Nazis couldn't even handle it. Was this inhumane? This was completely human. After the war, when Russia marched into Berlin, they did many of the same things to German civilians. Starving women who came out of their homes to search for food were targeted for gang rape by Russian soldiers. Fathers were forced to watch their daughters raped and tortured and were forced to pick which soldier got to go first. In the USSR, people were tortured and enslaved in concentration camps in Siberia. Populations like the Ukrainians were selected to be starved to death. Parents were murdered in front of their children, but then the children were left alive to starve to death as to not waste any bullets on them. Was this inhumane? This was completely human. Okay, but surely, these examples are extremes and the result of citizens being brainwashed by fascists and communists. It would be wonderful if that was all this was, but we see endless examples of these massacres throughout history. In Rwanda in 1994, People were tortured and raped, and over 800,000 were murdered. 1.2 million Armenians were murdered by the Young Turks from 1915 to 1923. Roughly 2 million were murdered in Cambodia between 1975 and 1979. In Guatemala, thousands of Mayan Indians were murdered. The Reconciliation Commission of South Africa found that there were over 36,000 cases of abductions, rape, tortures, and killings. I could go on and on, talking about the genocide committed against the Rohingya Muslims, the rape epidemic in the Congo and Haiti, ISIS, the Taliban, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, the French military in Algeria, the British Empire in Tasmania, and many other lands they conquered, and even the slavery of Africans in the Western world and the genocide committed against Native Americans. On every continent in every century, genocide, rape, and war has been committed by humans, because that is what humans do. And I've only stuck with recent examples. Our history is filled with countless more examples and probably even more acts of genocide that were lost to time. Humans are murderous, selfish, evil creatures, and we have the audacity to call genocide inhumane. I would bet the hundreds of species we've directly caused to go extinct wish we were actually inhumane. And let's not pretend that we ourselves are somehow better than these other humans, or that we would never commit such horrible acts. Most of the people who ended up committing these terrible acts were terrifyingly normal. They did it out of hate, fear, pride, or just to be accepted by superiors. Holocaust survivor and professor Freddie Katz says, only a tiny proportion of this century's massive killings are attributable to the actions of those people we call criminals, or crazy people, or socially alienated people, or even people we identify as evil people. The vast majority of killings were carried out by plain folk in the population, ordinary people like you and me. Katz reminds us it was ordinary people that carried out the plans of Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. It was ordinary people that sat by and let it happen, assuring themselves their own skins would be saved if they just followed orders. It was ordinary people that let political divides turn into vitriolic hatred for their opponents that eventually led them to think they must be killed first before they turn and kill us. 
We forget that there were actually many Jews that administered the ghettos or manned the gas chambers out of fear for their own survival. Even now in this country, people who are on opposite sides of the political spectrum are spoken of as not even human or need to be murdered for the greater good. It doesn't take many more steps before we allow ourselves to slide into actions we cannot take back. People today are even talking as if a civil war is on the horizon. And yet we don't think massacres could happen today? Given the history of our species, I am highly skeptical things could not get out of control, as they so often have in the past. Psychologist Israel Charney says, Sometimes sitting in a staff meeting of a modern psychiatric hospital, I could see how it all could happen. The ingredients were all there. The bitter, hating factions among the staff disguising themselves in the pomp and circumstances of a mental health conference. The barely disguised superiority and disdain for the hapless patient. The patronizing professional sympathy and righteousness that barely concealed the brutality of the so-called modern therapies of electric shock and brain surgery. The dehumanizing everyday hurting of anonymous patients into anonymous routines. Everywhere, in lovely families that persecuted one or more of their members. In the universities I loved, where faculty intrigues and hatred knew no bounds and the pompous coldness of exalted physicians turning away from the death fears of their patients. Almost every researcher that has looked into genocide concludes that genocide is carried out by the average person, not by supervillains or dark lords. Whether we want to lie to ourselves or not, there is potential in us all to commit genocide and all sorts of other selfish, evil acts. Langdon Gilkey believed humans were naturally good until he was placed in an internment camp by the Japanese. He said, Nothing indicates so clearly the fixed belief in the innate goodness of humans as does this confidence that when the chips are down and we are revealed for what we really are, we will all be good to each other. Nothing could be so totally an error. We forget that we have most of our needs met in the Western world that most people who have lived on this earth did not have access to. We've not had to face the hardships of the past, like tribal warfare, with the kill-or-be-kill mentality, because we are blessed with such excess. So we are lucky our primal natures are not so evident. If you had to fight for your survival under a brutal regime or in an ancient setting, you may very well be surprised at what you were capable of. The reality is our depraved nature is not something thrust upon us. It is very much a part of us and our ancestry. The murder rate in prehistoric times was much higher than we expected. When there was no law or fear of punishment, people often did what they had to do to survive, or simply just did what they wanted. In fact, a recent paper suggested, due to high murder rates, the human population bottlenecked roughly between 5,000 and 7,000 years ago, with only one man for every 17 women. The idea modern societies have simply corrupted us is not backed by data. Studies also back this up. Stanley Milgram conducted the first Milgram experiments, where a subject would be brought in under the assumption that he was there to be one of two participants in a learning experiment. They were instructed to ask a person in another room a series of questions, unbeknownst they were actually a paid actor. If the other person answered wrong, they would have to give them an electrical shock 
as ordered by the scientists. Each shock would increase in the amount of pain it caused. The actor would cry from the other room they were having heart problems, but the scientist performing the experiments would tell the subject he had to keep going regardless of the pain they were causing the person in the other room. The results shockingly demonstrated that 65% of subjects administered all the shocks as instructed, including one that was perpetrated to give a lethal shock. Other researchers replicated these results with even higher percentages with subjects administering all the shocks. In 1970 in West Germany, 85% administered all shocks. In 2017 in Poland, 90% of participants also administered all the shocks. The data shows it is not hard for the average person to do horrible things. Atheist Michael Roos says, I think Christianity is spot on about original sin. How could one think otherwise when the world's most civilized and advanced people, the people of Beethoven, Goethe, Kant, embraced that slimeball Hitler and participated in the Holocaust? But surely there has to be some good people out there who do not deserve the lives they've been given. Clay Jones asks a very simple question in his book. Do gang members stop at red lights? Yes, but not because they respect that particular law. It is out of self-interest. No one wants to get sidelined by oncoming traffic. Most people do not rob banks because they don't want to go to jail. Most people do not cheat on their spouse because they don't want to destroy a marriage they may like, ruin their reputation, or lose relationships they derive meaning from. It's hard to deny that much of what motivates us is self-interest. When people do decide to go ahead with these terrible acts, it is because they think they have clever ways out of them, or think the act will benefit them more than what they could lose. The sad reality is, we are all motivated by our own self-interest. In light of human nature, even acts of heroism and sacrifice can be motivated by self-interest. Ernest Becker, who openly rejects Christianity, says, Everything painful and sobering in what psychoanalytical genius and religious genius had discovered about man revolves around the terror of admitting what one is doing to earn his self-esteem. This is why human heroics is a blind drivenness that burns people up. In passionate people, a screaming for glory as uncritical and reflexive as the howling of a dog. In the more passive masses of mediocre men, it is disguised as they humbly and complainingly follow out the roles that society has provided for their heroics. Man will lay down his life for his country, his society, his family. He will choose to throw himself on a grenade to save his comrades. He is capable of the highest generosity and self-sacrifice. But he has to feel and believe that what he is doing is truly heroic, timeless, and supremely meaningful. The hard truth no one wants to accept is there is no one good. None are righteous. No one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There are many that wish to whitewash Jesus and just reduce him to a good moral teacher that offered some good advice and lessons. But Jesus never paints humanity as something inherently good that just needs a little guidance, but instead as sinners that desperately need to repent lest we too perish. If Christianity is true and needs to answer for why bad things happen to people, the answer we offer is this. 
There are no good people for bad things to happen to. D.A. Carson says, First, Jesus does not assume that those who suffered under Pilate, or those who were killed in the collapse of the tower, did not deserve their fate. Indeed, the fact that he can tell those contemporaries that unless they repent, they too will perish, shows that Jesus assumes that all death is in one way or another the result of sin, and therefore deserved. Second, Jesus does insist that death, by such means, is no evidence whatsoever that those who suffer in this way are any more wicked than those who escape such a fate. The assumption seems to be that all deserve to die. If some die under a barbarous governor and others in a tragic accident, it is not more than they deserve. But that does not mean that others deserve any less. Rather, the implication is that it is only God's mercy that has kept them alive. Third, Jesus treats wars and natural disasters not as agenda items in a discussion of the mysterious ways of God, but as incentives to repentance. It is as if he is saying that God uses disaster as a megaphone to call attention to our guilt and destination, to the imminence of his righteous judgment if he sees no repentance. This is an argument developed at great length in Amos 4. Disaster is a call to repentance. Jesus might have added, as he does elsewhere, that peace and tranquility, which we do not deserve, show us God's goodness and forbearance. It is a mark of our lostness that we invert these two. We think we deserve the times of blessing and prosperity, and think the times of war and disaster are not only unfair, but come perilously close to calling into question God's goodness or his power, even perhaps his very existence. Jesus simply did not see it that way. Now, I've hammered this point for quite a while because one of the worst lies we tell ourselves is we really are good and do not deserve the world we have created. But nothing could be further from the truth. God's judgment or absence in rescuing us from this world seems barbaric only to the person that has not understood the depths of human psychology. But if we can take some time to reflect on the state of humanity, as C.S. Lewis puts it, God's wrath seems to be inevitable, a mere corollary from God's goodness. Miroslav Wolf once questioned the wrath of God, but when he saw 200,000 people killed in Yugoslavia, he said, My people were shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination, and I could not imagine God not being angry. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. Now I need to be clear that myself or any of the authors I've quoted are not saying every horrible thing that happens to a person should be seen as a direct punishment from God for their sin. No one is suggesting that. The point is simply to critique the notion that bad things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And this is so because this is the world the human species chooses to live in every day. As R.C. Sproul once said, Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that only happened once, and he volunteered. The truth of the matter is, no one has died before the age of accountability that is not guilty. Every person is invested in self-interest and contributes to evil one way or another. 
In light of all this, the real question we should be asking is not why does a good God allow so much evil, but why does a good God not just wipe us out for the good of the universe? The answer to why there is so much evil is simple. There are so many humans. Every day, we choose to contribute to the evil in the world by simply going about our day, doing nothing, and focusing on ourselves. To put this into perspective with numbers, the UN estimates it would cost roughly $30 billion a year to end world hunger. And Americans alone wasted $116 billion in gambling in 2016. God has already given us everything we need to turn this world into Eden, and we simply delay it. Whether you want to admit it or not, every one of us contributes to the evil in the world, mostly through focusing on ourselves and doing nothing to help. We have everything we need to end things like world hunger and human trafficking, and instead, we spend our money on pointless things just to make ourselves happy. Because if the problem is not right in our face, we pretend it doesn't exist. Simply put, evil exists because we exist. When this has been pointed out, the next question is, why did God create us this way? Why are we so easily prone to commit horrible acts? Well, that is assuming God did make us evil. One can argue he did not. He made us free, and to be truly free means we have to be allowed to choose how we want to be. C.S. Lewis says, the moment you have a self at all, there is the possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God. In fact, that was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin he taught to the human race. It is not as if we were simply made to be this way. As a species, we choose to be this way every day instead of focusing on good and holy things. This is not how things were supposed to be. Early on, God called humans out of the wilderness to serve as priests over creation and to enter into a covenant with him so that he could sanctify us to subdue the rest of creation in his name. This is the story of Eden, when Adam and Eve were called by God to be close to him and learn his ways. But they rejected the covenant God made with them and left his presence so we could be our own gods, and with that came the freedom to go as far into evil as we wanted to no matter how it would affect those around us. God did not doom us to a world of evil. Our species, by rejecting Eden, did so. And without God's protection in Eden and the tree of life, we now live in a world of moral and natural evil. Now many will object they were not in Eden. How can we be forced to live in a fallen world that we did not choose? Clay Jones responds to this by saying, That we didn't individually vote to make Adam the head of our race doesn't matter because God knows who can best represent us. Also, if God knew that all of us would have acted similarly, he does no wrong in choosing one person to represent us. If Christianity is true and the problem of evil needs to be addressed, one cannot say it is unfair Adam and Eve were our chosen representatives. God, in his omniscience, knew who the best representatives would have been, and therefore, given human free will, there were no possible futures where humans did not choose sin. So why even give us free will? Should we really have been given the freedom to be truly evil? Why on earth would such a world not be better, where we are deprived of free will, so as to not cause grief, pain, and misery?
Clay Jones notes it is not hard to perceive of such worlds, and more often than not, they are far worse than a world with free will. We ought to consider how humanity has looked at this scenario, and unsurprisingly, a life without free will is often portrayed in movies as a horrible existence, and this should be pretty obvious. Take the old movie from the 50s, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. The invaders do not want to kill off humanity, but simply change humanity to lack free will, and they offer it as a wonderful existence, free of pain, desire, emotion, ambition, self-interest. In such a world not only terrifies us, it becomes obvious that such a world would be worse than a world with free will and evil. Miles, it would have been so much easier if you'd gone to sleep last night. Now relax. We're here to help you. You know better than that. We want us to put them. Would you like to watch them grow? No, thanks. Put them in there. There's nothing to be afraid of. We're not going to hurt you. But once you understand, you'll be grateful. Remember how Teddy and I fought against it? Well, we were wrong. You mean Teddy doesn't mind? Of course not. She feels exactly the way I do. Let us go! Look, we'll leave town. We won't come back. We can't let you go. You're dangerous to us. Don't fight it, Miles. It's no use. Sooner or later, you'll have to go to sleep. I'll wait for you in the hall. Miles, you and I are scientific men. You can understand the wonder of what's happened. Now, just think. Less than a month ago, Santa Mara was like any other town. People with nothing but problems. Then out of the sky came a solution. Seeds drifting through space for years took root in a farmer's field. From the seeds came pods, which had the power to reproduce themselves in the exact likeness of any form of life. So that's how it began. Out of the sky. Your new bodies are growing in there. They're taking you over, cell for cell, atom for atom. There's no pain. Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories, and you're reborn into an untroubled world. Where everyone's the same? Exactly. What a world. We're not the last humans left. They'll destroy you. Tomorrow you won't want them to. Tomorrow you'll be one of us. I love Becky. Tomorrow will I feel the same? There's no need for love. No emotion. Then you have no feelings. Only the instinct to survive. You can't love or be loved, am I right? You say it as if it were terrible. Believe me, it isn't. You've been in love before. It didn't last. It never does. Love, desire, ambition, faith. Without them, life's so simple. Believe me. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice. I guess we haven't any choice. Good. I want to love and be loved. I want your children. I don't want a world without love or grief or beauty. My brother died. The obvious reason as to why it is better to have free will and evil than to lack both is because we would simply lose our humanity. 
Our movies and books celebrate realities where a world of free will, along with pain and misery, is a far better alternative to a world without these things. A good example can be seen in the movie Pleasantville. Two teenagers are transferred into a scripted television show from the 1950s, where everything is perfectly happy, yet enslaved to a script they have to run through. However, the teens begin to introduce new passions and desires to the characters, and throughout the movie, all the characters reject their scripted enslavement for a life of freedom and color. Even though that comes with passions, emotions, suffering, and problems. The message is clear. The freedom to engage in love, passions, desires, must come with real freedoms to do so. Without free will, these things are meaningless, even though it comes with the bad as well. An existence of freedom, along with misery and love, is far better than scripted enslavement. The truth of the matter is, given the option of a world with free will and pain versus a world without free will and pain, humans will always most likely choose a world with free will. Because, as Alvin Plantinga says, a world containing creatures who are significantly free and freely perform more good than evil actions is more valuable, all else being equal, than a world containing no free creatures at all. So God simply could not have created humans without free will. We essentially would just be biological robots. And that is not a world where we could truly experience love and companionship. But with that has to come the true freedom to choose love or choose evil. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. If you want a world with true conscious agents who are free, you have to allow them to choose good without forcing them to. Ask yourself this, would you as a healthy adult want to spend a lifetime married to a lifeless robot who always does what you command, never speaks to you as a free agent, or engages in an honest discussion? If the answer is no, then you can understand why God chose a world where we are truly free and choose to love him or not. But surely there had to be another way. Couldn't we have a world without the horrendous evil we currently have? A world without a holocaust or the Rwanda massacre, where we still have free will, must surely be possible. Clay Jones debated Richard Norman on the radio show Unbelievable, and Jones pressed Norman to answer this. How could God give humans free will and not let them hurt others? And the only answer he offered was, I don't know, I'm not God, but it is possible. The key, I guess, back to my major point is that doesn't just saying it should have been a different world doesn't mm -hmm. tell us how anywhere near how that world works. Well, look, I'm not the divine creator. <laughs> See, that's, I mean, that's, you know, I that's keep saying we're talking about divine exactly. omnipotence in which yeah, any number what? of possible worlds could Richard. exist. Clay Jones simply replied to that with, if you can't imagine a better way, then it's at least logically possible that there isn't a better way. I don't know. I'm not God is a cop out. We've harnessed the atom and put a man on the moon. If you're going to complain that God should have done differently with regard to free will, but you cannot offer a better way, then maybe there isn't a better way. Tony. There was no other way. As we discussed in our video on omniscience, Avengers Infinity Wars provides an excellent analogy. Doctor Strange looked into the future and could only see one possible way 
to save the most number of people. But that way involved a lot of pain and death, given the free choices of evil creatures. Likewise, given God's middle knowledge, where he can only actualize a world that works with the free choices of creatures, there are no possible worlds where God could create a world where we are free and there is no evil or misfortune. God would actualize the world where there is the least amount of evil, while taking human free choices into account. Therefore, the argument is, given human freedom within middle knowledge, God might not be able to actualize perfect worlds or worlds with less evil, because there are no possible worlds where we are free and always do the right thing or do the right thing more often. But couldn't God just actively prevent more evil? When the Nazis lined up the Jews to be shot, why didn't he just make the guns jam or cause an earthquake to form a great chasm between them both? Such a world would not have freedom. It would be a playpen with an overprotective mother. C.S. Lewis says, We can perhaps conceive of a world in which God corrected the results of the abuse of free will by his creatures at every moment, so that a wooden beam becomes soft as grass when it was used as a weapon, and the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carry lies or insults. But such a world would be one in which wrong actions were impossible, and in which, therefore, freedom of the will would be void. Evil is not evil only in intention. It needs to be carried out and experienced. Otherwise, we are not truly free to do what we want. We would be nothing more than constrained robots, locked in with predetermined boundaries. This would be a sci-fi horror where we know there is something holding us back and can't freely reject it. We can see from sci-fi shows, being free up to a certain point is not freedom. It's slavery. System, I need a system. Freeze all motor functions. God wants actual free creatures to do the good. But the only way he can truly have free creatures that will do the good is allow us to see the devastating consequences that rebellion causes. Babying us is not freedom, nor would we ever grow and learn to freely choose to reject evil. We have to experience it for ourselves and hopefully learn from it. Uh, it's a dictator who says, be free, but you'll suffer if you use your freedom in this kind of way. Yes, thank you for that, Richard. I agree with yeah. yeah, be free, but if you use your free will wrongly, you're really going to hurt each other. It's going to be bad. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. But isn't the problem with so your position precisely, precisely that you make God sound like um, uh, some kind of dictator? That's just some the problem with your position, <laughs> well, isn't it? A dictator that says, do what you want. And here we are doing uh, what we want. No, do what you want and you will suffer for it. Well, do what you want and look what you'll do. You'll do Auschwitz to each other. Mm -hmm. You'll do the, you'll be the Khmer Rouge. You'll be Rwanda. This is what happens when free beings go off and decide they're going to do whatever they want. And, and so to say he's a dictator that says to his people, okay, you don't want to follow my rules? Knock yourselves well, out. Okay. And see but couldn't God teach us another way? Given the self-centered nature of humanity, I ask how. Some have suggested God ought to provide dreams to warn people, but that is assuming we would even listen. Growing up, my parents warned me not to do a number of stupid things. I did them anyway, as we all did when we were kids. 
There has been a surge in general warning on cigarette packets for decades. People still smoke. Recent history alone is filled with examples of large corporations who had evidence their products were harmful, and they did nothing. God performed dozens of miracles before Israel in the desert, and they still hardened their hearts and complained. So perhaps if God was more involved, nothing would change. Real life is not an episode of Touched by an Angel, where a glowing being can show up, tell us to change, and we live happily ever after. People have to be shown how evil they are and what their actions cause. If everyone could just be told to change, things would have gotten a lot better thousands of years ago. This is a hard truth humanity has to learn, and it cannot be done by God simply babying us and providing knee pads for every corner. In fact, if God did simply that and gave us everything needed to keep us perfectly happy, arguably it could make things worse. Keith Ward says, I could give people lots of good things, and they will like me because of what I give them. But will they love me freely for myself? Will they love me unselfishly? Hardly. In fact, such a course of action may be self-defeating. I cannot make people unselfish by giving them lots of things they want, and so encouraging selfish tendencies. We have to remember the chief goal of God is not to make us happy, but to make us holy through sanctification, which will make us truly happy in the long run, as we discussed in our videos on the nature of heaven and hell. And given the self-centered nature of humanity, that God would want us to overcome, having us live in a fallen world will help us to realize we need to return to God and to be sanctified. William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland put it like this, Innocent human suffering provides an occasion for deeper dependency and trust in God. If we are depraved, as the evidence shows, keeping humanity happy and safe will not fix what is actually wrong with us. History seems to show that hardships cause more people to turn to God. Patrick Johnstone has noted in his work that Christianity tends to grow more in countries that have faced severe hardship. Under communist rule in China, Christianity was, and still is to some degree, heavily persecuted. Yet despite that, it is set to become the world's largest Christian nation by 2030. Although I do not argue God is the cause of misery and suffering, allowing us to live in a fallen world that we choose can be used by God to bring us back to Him and ultimately help sanctify us into eternity where our present pain will be dwarfed in comparison to the joy we will experience there. But God doesn't always have to prevent evil. Why not just a little more? Why do children have to die of cancer? Couldn't the Holocaust have been cut in half if God had simply warned the Jews in a dream to get out of Germany before Hitler became Chancellor? In response, Clay Jones says, First, who is to say how much is too much? For instance, skeptics often cite the Holocaust as an example. I ask those who say God shouldn't have allowed so much evil whether they would be satisfied if instead of 6 million Jews killed, only 600,000 had been killed. No one ever says yes. 6,000? Nope. 600? Nope. 6? Should everyone be allowed to live to a certain age before they die? Should certain diseases only affect really bad people? At what point is the line drawn between security and freedom? A reality where we are free and have rejected God's lordship has to have real consequences.
and be fully realized for what it is. When people suggest this, what they are really saying is, I want to be God, and the Creator needs to be our magical butler, who watches over us, never lets anything really bad happen, but still lets us rebel so that we can do what we want. If that was the case, we would never truly see the real consequences that our rebellion has caused. Instead, we would have God as our servant, who is supposed to take care of us when it is needed, but doesn't really let the horrendous consequences of what happened when we abandoned him to play out in the natural world without his presence. Unless we see what the evil in our hearts truly does, we will never learn. God's message is simply that your rebellion must be fully realized so that hopefully you will come back. Summary so far. Evil exists because humans had the freedom to choose God, but instead we chose to be our own gods. When we walked away from God in Eden, we chose a different Lord for the earth, and with that, a world filled with issues that a connection to God and the tree of life would have prevented. Although God could regularly intervene, he doesn't because he wants our species to see the real consequences of our rebellion which is life without his presence and sanctification. As horrible as it is, it is the only way to learn the horrors of what life without God is like. Natural laws have to work in a regular way if our actions are to mean anything at all. But that is not the whole story. The skeptic who makes the argument from the problem of evil often will subtly presuppose a non-theistic worldview. They will mention a young child who died before his or her time from a horrible disease. But if the argument is to attack a Christian worldview, the whole of that worldview has to be taken into consideration. And more often than not, we forget that when that child dies, they do not rot in the grave forever, but can live on in eternity, and the pain in this life will be dwarfed in comparison to the joy we will feel in the next. The previous two videos I made went over heaven and hell and explain what they are and how no one in hell doesn't want to be there. So it's important to remember that God has not doomed us to a world of misery in one life or an eternity of misery in hell. Those who die can go on forever in a world of endless love if they choose to, and the joy we will experience in heaven will dwarf the misery we feel here. So the child dying of a horrible disease is not forgotten, but given new life in the age to come. Although God lets us experience what a world that has rejected him feels like, he still rescues all who want to be rescued. The worst pains of this life will be as minuscule in the next as the pains of when you fell down as a toddler are to you now as an adult. So you can't compare the evils we feel now on a Christian worldview without accounting for eternity. God has promised a way back to Eden for all those who want it. As C.S. Lewis said, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And God did not sit idly by. He didn't just make a way back to Eden. He came to us in our pain and misery to pull us out. There are a lot of gods that are for joy for our misery, but sit distantly away never experiencing as we experience, never suffering human pain as we suffer. Not with this God. 
There is only one God that plunged himself into pain to save us. You want to know the answer to a world filled with torture and murder? It is a God who was tortured and murdered to wipe away every tear and sadness. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. If evil is meaningless or a cruel joke an omnipotent God plays on us, then why did the omnipotent God empty himself, become a lowly servant to suffer as we suffer and die as we die? Even the atheist philosopher Albert Camus admitted, Christ, the man-God, suffers too, with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him, since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man, only because in its shadow, the divinity abandoned its traditional privilege and drank its last drop, despair included, the agony of death. Even if you cannot find a reason for your suffering, and if nothing I said thus far suffices, in Christ, the reason can't be because he doesn't love us. At the cross, a coin was flipped, on one side justice and the other side mercy, and it was the only time in history the coin landed on its edge. God allowed justice to fall on himself so that mercy might fall on us. The Gospels thus tell the story which is unique in the world's great literature, religious theories or philosophies. The story of the Creator God taking responsibility for what's happened to creation, bearing the weight of his problems on his own shoulders. As Sidney Carter, most famous for writing The Lord of the Dance, put it in one of, to my mind, his finest songs, it's God they ought to crucify instead of you and me, I said to the carpenter, a hanging on the tree. Or as one old evangelistic tract put it, the nations of the world got together to pronounce sentence on God for all the evils in the world, only to realize with a shock that God had already served his sentence. The tidal wave of evil had crashed over the head of God himself. The terrorist spear went into his side like a plane crashing into a great building. God has been there. He has taken the weight of the world's evil on his own shoulders. You cannot look at the problem of evil while ignoring the cross. God took evil upon himself so that a new creation could begin in his resurrection. If evil is the fault of God, he has already carried out his sentence. As St. Augustine said, God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. If evil is a problem, the problem is also felt by God. The cry of Jesus to Paul says it all. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? Jesus places himself in the midst of evil and suffering with us. If evil was too much to bear for any creature, God would never have created in the first place. But God still did create knowing full well he would take the brunt of it, because the love of creation was worth more than all the pain he feels through us. Evil exists for now because of us, but even in that, God took the pain and misery of us all faithfully to the cross, and in the end, he will wipe away every tear.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. And a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.